Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. I'm going to be reading out of uh, Revelations. Revelation. Sorry, no S. Uh, starting in chapter 15, verse 5, and then reading through the chapter 16. And it says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on all the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out of his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go out, go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh bowl, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And they were flashing and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nation fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. May God bless the reading of his word. Revelation 15 and 16 uh, are teaching to remember how they're teaching us. That is... uh, So often like Jesus, instead of uh, just telling us that God has extravagant, wide-opened, armed love for us, he told a story. 
about a man who had two sons. Instead of Jesus uh, telling us about the urgent need uh, to love those, to love our neighbor, to love those who we have nothing in common with, he told a story about a man who was hurt and a road and people who walked by and one who stopped to help. But the book of Revelation is teaching us real things, urgent things, through imagery. And the images are themselves are not the real things, but they speak to real things that in some ways will be worse than the images themselves. Now, all the images in this text are actually uh, drawing on uh, the Exodus plagues. So if you go back and you read the book of Exodus, when God comes to Egypt and to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and they will not, He brings judgment and wrath on them in the form of plagues. And almost all of that imagery is used to draw upon here. Those real things that happened in real time to the Egyptians are drawn upon to make a point to teach us one thing this morning, and that's the horror and reality of God's wrath. Now, this has been one of the most contemptible rejections in the Western church for anybody who's been looking into Christianity or tried to be a Christian about the idea of God's wrath. What do you do with a wrathful God? Because for many people in our culture, it's impossible to have a God who would love us and be wrathful. And so a God who has wrath feels like a God who we don't want to be real, and if He's real, I don't want to know Him or have anything to do with Him. But I think there's a part of our culture that's also suggesting that while it's a problem to have a God who has wrath, it may be even more of a problem for us to have a God who doesn't have wrath. Uh, One TV writer who wrote a TV series a couple years ago um, was extremely successful, Vince Gilligan. He was interviewed about his TV show and why he wrote the way that he did, and this guy was not a Christian. And he said this, he said, I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. I like to believe that there is some comeuppance, that at some point karma will kick in, even if it takes years or decades to happen. He says, my girlfriend says this great thing that's become my philosophy as well. I want to believe there's a heaven. I really do. But I can't not believe there's a hell. See, he's saying, look, it really is a problem for us in the church and out of the church of a God of wrath. But it's, it's a bigger problem to not have a God of wrath. And it, also, it almost makes the idea and longing for heaven untastable. And, and you know, the Puritans used to talk about the idea of, God, of a God of wrath is, is actually a gift for us from Scripture to learn about the nature of His love. So from Revelation 15 and 16, let's learn this this morning on the idea of God's wrath. Let's learn the nature of God's wrath. Let's learn the message in God's wrath.
And then third, the hope in God's wrath. So first, the nature of God's wrath. Now, in the book of Revelation, there are three cycles of judgment. We actually looked at one. We didn't have time to look at the second one. There is the seals in chapters 6 and chapter 8. Then there are the trumpets in chapters 9 through 11. And then here we have the bowls. And what most, most scholars will tell us is that they're not three different judgment moments, but they're three different perspectives on the same judgment moment. The first, the seals, is from the suffering church. The second, the trumpets, is from the perspective of the secular, unbelieving, rejecting world. And this third one is going to be from the perspective of God himself. Look back in the text with me. He says in chapter 15, After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened. And then again in chapter 16, he says, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So this message about, to the seven bowls about what to do is coming from the temple, which tells us that it's coming from God himself. And these images of the bowls are temple items. They were likely things that would have sat under the sacrifices in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, that collected and caught the ashes. And the image is, is to, say, to take the ashes under the sacrifice and go and pour them out. And what we're being told here right from the beginning is that this wrath that we're being communicated about is coming directly from God's command himself. Now, the image that our culture has here is something like the family guy uh, of an image of just like an old white man up on a cloud uh, with like an AR-15 and a sniper scope on it who's just waiting to pick off anybody who doesn't live a conservative life the way that he wants to live. But that's not in any way what the nature of God's wrath is here in this text. Because if you noticed this in verses 9, 10, and 20, it says this, each time a bowl was poured out, it says they did not repent and give him glory. In fact, we're told in verse 20, all the way at the end, it says uh, uh, they cursed God for the plagues because the plagues were so severe. And what this is telling us is that look, when, when God pours out his wrath. This is not some sort of like angry bully uh, who's just come because somebody messed up his room. But what, really, what it really is is that there is a bill due on evil in this universe. And those who are a part of the evil never ever will come to God and say, I don't have the money. Can you be merciful and cancel the debt? There's just a tone of anger that the bill is even issued. Like, who do you think you are even sending me this bill? And what we learn here about the nature of God's wrath right from the beginning is that wrath is never given to anyone who doesn't want it. It's, it's not like God takes people dangling by the coattails and just holds them over and they're going, please, no, stop. I beg of you anything but this. But all the way 
up to the point of wrath itself, even when it's being unleashed, there's never any moment of give me mercy. It's how dare, how dare you even think about doing this? So that C.S. Lewis says it so well this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. God will say, thy will be done. And it it will come in sort of three aspects. Disintegration, condemnation, and vindication. Let me show you what I mean from the text. Disintegration. If you look in verse 2, it says, So the first angel poured out the bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And then in verse 10, it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged in the darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. Now, what we're learning here is that one of the evil things in this world is that people worship the values of this world. And when we worship anything other than the God that we were created to worship, something happens to us. See, we were designed to worship and give ourselves to one thing. And by nature, because of what sin will do to us, is lead us to find something else to give our life to. And when we do that, when we give our life to something other than God, we're giving our life to something that will never give back to us what we long for it to give to us. And what happens is it begins to disintegrate us because everything that we go after in this world has an addictive nature to it. Where at first we like these things, then they become important to us, but then they become our life. And the problem is the more we make them our life, the worse we become. Uh, There's an author I read a lot who always references this article uh, from The Village Voice by a a woman named Cynthia Heimel. She knew these famous um, actors and actresses when they were just on Broadway uh, trying to make it and working in restaurants and, and trying to be waiters and waitresses, just trying to make ends meet to pay rent. She knew them before and then after they became hugely famous. She said this. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. In the morning after each one was made famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay and provide them with personal fulfillment, when it happened, they were still themselves. The disillusionment turned into howling and insufferable life. See, what the wrath of God is, is that for all of us who find something in this world that will make us okay and give us personal fulfillment. He'll one day just said, okay, if you want to do life that way and you want to pursue this for forever, have at it. 
and you will just become this howling and insufferable person who not just chases that thing, only is known after that thing. C.S. Lewis says further, he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop. Then there will be no left there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. See, it is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. You know, I mean, all of us right now are functional idol-aholics. But one day, if you look at God and say, let me do it my way, He will let all of your magnified desires become like a drug and alcohol addiction forever. It's not just disintegration, there's condemnation. Look in verse 15.5, he says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened. Now this language, the tent of witnesses, elsewhere is used as the tabernacle of testimony. What this is likely uh, referring to is a place in the tabernacle where was the Ark of the Covenant, and in it uh, were the Ten Commandments and the place where God sat. And for ancient Israel, this was a place where Israel went for mercy and for forgiveness, but it is now in this image a place of judgment. One commentator, he said this, the bowls are a natural automatic reflect of the holiness of God to evil and impurity. In a sense, what we're being told here is that the consequences of us all violating God's law, choosing our own way to live life, never being as loving as we were meant to be, never being as giving as we were meant to be, will one day have to be answered for. And there's always one consequence of this. It's guilt and exile. See, morally good people want to look at God's law and say, well, for the most part, yes. Or I did it better than them. Well, at least I'm not like that person. But, you know, Jesus' parable in, in Luke 18 of the, 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 the tax collector and the sinner, he, he says, listen, unless your righteousness is perfect, you too will stand condemned. That look, everybody at one point is going to give an account for everything. We, we do not get away with anything. And, and the universe needs this because people often hear this and go, well, why does God have to be this way? Well, look, morality is, is not a social construct. That is, what we believe is right and true in the world 
is not just the way the church wanted it, or it's not the way white males wanted it in order to make life work for us. What we believe about Christian ethics is that they're rooted in the heart and character of God. So that he's saying, this is who I am. And life makes sense and only works when you reflect and live it after my character. And if he doesn't uphold that character, he'll actually dishonor himself and lose the universe. In 2004, my wife and I, we were in seminary living in Philadelphia, and uh, their football team uh, went 15-1 and and went to the Super Bowl. They were incredible. One of the major reasons is because they had this wide receiver, Taylor Owens, who was one of the best players in the NFL. But uh, he had an, uh, an, I mean, he's like, in the Wikipedia article of Ego, like his picture is there. And uh, the next year, it all came awry because he just could not not make it about himself. And the problem, I remember many of the um, sports commentators were saying, is that they kept bending the rules for him. Like he would, break, he would break a curfew rule, he would break a, uh, a training camp rule, and they kept bending it because he was so talented and he was so good and he changed the team so much. And what ended up happening is this team that went to the Super Bowl the very next year, they went about 4-12, and 12, and they totally lost the team. And they lost the team because they had bent the rules for one guy. Look, the wrath of God is on his law, is God saying, I will not lose the universe and bend this for one moral person who was pretty good because he wants everybody to repent. His wrath involves disintegration, condemnation, but also vindication. You look at verses 4 to 6. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, who brought forth these judgments, for what they shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This image of of drinking blood suggests that those people who have caused oppression and persecution and untold evil in this world, that there will come a day that they will pay more than they spent causing evil in this world. God will not let any of the unjust atrocities of this world get away with it. And in fact, if he doesn't do this, and we don't have this coming, it's almost impossible to have hope and worship him. Miroslav Volv, he's a professor at Yale University, grew up in the Balkans, and witnessed untold evil in his childhood. In the midst of civil war, uh, he was also raised to believe uh, the Catholic faith. But he said it was almost impossible in the midst of what was going on. 
And then he began to wonder, look, the God who I didn't want to believe in because of wrath, I almost can't not believe in him unless there is wrath. He, put, he said it this way, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia from where I was from. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in, day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade or the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly loving fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loving. God is wrathful because God is loving. See, what God's wrath is, is looking at all the things that you and I refuse to stop making our life and saying, fine, if you want to do that forever, have it your way. For all of us who have not been what we need to be, there will be an account. And for every atrocity that's ever been dished out in this world, there will be a reckoning. And that's the nature of God's wrath. Now quickly, what's the message in this? Because this is immediately like a commercial where we're like, change the channel. But here's the message. We're told this in verse uh, 2 and 3, that all of the bowl is poured out. In the first cycles of judgment, you see this with the seals. It says a third covers the earth with the seals. And then you get to... Uh, excuse me, a fourth covers the earth with the seals, and then you get to the trumpets in a, in a third. And the fractions in the book of Revelation are just mercy. But here, the whole bowl was poured out. And what we're told is that the hourglass is running out, and there will be a day where there's no more mercy. And then in verse 15, it says this, Behold, I will come like a thief. Look, this wrath, it's, it's not going to come with signs, okay? It's not going to come with indications and memes that say it will be biblical and all these crazy things will begin to happen and then we'll know. He says, I will come, like Jesus says this in Luke 12, I will come like a thief in the night. As in, you will have no idea this is about to come. And the question is like, why, well, why will there be no warning? 
It's because this is the warning. It's because everything God has said in his word is the warning. And the, and the implications of that are personal and social. Look, the personal one is that, look, fear of wrath has never changed anybody's heart. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, in his, in his text, in his sermon on this text, he just says, look, all fear will do is make you change sins. You'll just go from a really immoral person to a moral person who may become incredibly self-righteous and stand on your righteousness. So the point in the message of God's wrath is not meant, it doesn't, it's not hopefully going to change your entire well-being. But what it will do, especially if you're a Christian, is bring you some sobriety. That reality in a mirror is coming. I remember one minister, he used to say, towards the end of your life, you begin to almost reflect your eternal destiny. So the message is, what seeds are you sowing that are definitely coming for a reaping? But it also has implications socially. Look, if your neighbor was doing something that was hurting themselves, likely we don't want to get involved and do anything about it. But if your child is doing something that is destroying themselves, you can't not sleep without getting involved. You know, hate is not the opposite of love. Indifference is which is really where God's wrath goes. And you know what that says about our relationship to most of our neighbors is that we really hate them. If they are doing something to themselves that will one day in itself be hell, unless we go after them, there was an article in the Atlantic a couple years ago with atheist teenagers who were asked about Christianity. And one of them said, you know, well, I just don't buy it because I don't think many of the followers take it seriously. And the author goes, well, why do you think that? And he said, well, because few of you talk to me about it. As if you really thought all of this was coming, Wouldn't you want me to know that? It's the nature of God's wrath, the message of God's wrath, but thirdly and lastly, what's the hope in this? Well, the loud word in this text is in uh, verse 16 when it says this, uh, and they assembled them at the place in the Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Now, this word Armageddon uh, comes from the Hebrew word uh, Megio, which was a place in between uh, Judah and uh, Babylon. It was likely a place that they had actually ba- actual battles. And Harma, the prefix for this, uh, is the word Mount. Now, most scholars will tell you there is no Mount Megio. So again, when John says the place Armageddon, th- there's not a literal place where the final battle for evil 
and the living God will take place. It's talking about a climactic event where evil will gather up all of its last forces and want to draw God out for one final battle. But you know what's fascinating? Is when you get to chapter 19, we're told the battle will never take place. Because the evil forces will come out and then Jesus will show up and it will be immediately over. And every commentator wants to go, well, well, why will the battle be over? And it's because the battle has already been fought and won at the cross. And you, you know what the cross is? It is God's proof for you that his wrath is not without his love. Look, if you, if you have a problem with hell and, and God's wrath, you have no idea your value. Take a God of only love and a God of hell. On this one hand, this God, one God says, I just welcome you, I love you, come on in. This other God says, in order for you to become mine, I'm going to have to suffer. And I'm going to have to die. And I'm going to have to go through hell and back in order to make you mine. This one God over here of love only can say I love you, but it's only a concept. And you can never know how much it cost him to love you. But this other God You can measure how much he loves you and see it in the price that he paid in the insufferable hell, enduring all of this wrath on the cross to taste and experience union with you. And and how how much did he pay? Well, this is the great verse. In verse 17, it says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air and a loud voice came from the temple from the throne saying, it is done. You know, the apostle John wrote this and he had to be thinking about something else that he wrote in his gospel when he said in John 19 that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is done. That it is finished. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that he became a propitiation for our sin. That is what he did. He turned God's wrath away from us by enduring it all himself and made all of God's wrath fully satisfied so that for us, all you have to do to survive God's wrath is what he says in verse 15. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go out naked. Look, in the coming wrath of God, all you have to do is not be naked. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were naked, And they sinned and they ran and they hid. And they got garments of fig skins all their own trying to cover themselves up. 
And then it says that what God did is he killed an animal, he shed blood, and gave them skins of their, for them to cover themselves with. That all you have to do is what Paul says in Galatians 3, to put on Jesus. And it will fully turn the wrath of God from you. Alistair Begg is a minister in Ohio. Said one time in one of his sermons, he said, you know, I, I really want to talk to that thief that was on the cross with Jesus that one day. And he sat there, and the guy was just mocking him with everybody else just totally caught up in all of the values and caught up in all the conversation, just laughing and making fun of this guy. And who knows how much longer he lived, but Jesus said something to him. And later that day, he stood there at the gates of heaven. Beg just says, you know, imagine it going, you know, like somebody saying, how did you get here? The man just going, I don't know. I go, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. I was just there. I was making fun of him. Next thing I know, I'm here. Okay, well, have you read the Bible? What? Okay, can you explain to me justification by faith? The work of Jesus. Do you understand? Are we, are we clear on this? The man just going, I have, what? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Angel just going, let me get my supervisor. The man coming back and going, okay, have you been baptized? No idea what you're talking about, man. You haven't been a member of a church. You haven't been in a Bible study. You've never, you've never taken communion. You've never done any of these things. What are you doing here? just goes, man, all those things you're talking about, I have no idea. All I know is that man up on the throne up there said I could come and said he was making all the preparations for it. Look, everybody is going to hear, it is finished. It will have tremendous meaning for you. The first time it's said or the second time it's going to be said. Make your story the first one so that you can stand there and say, all I know is that man up there said I could come. Let me pray. Father, these words, these things, this idea, it is terrifying 
yet none of us want to live in a world without it. Lord, for anybody right here, right now, who wonders whether or not they've been faithful enough, wonders whether or not they've been fervent enough, Lord, help them right now to get out of themselves and to grab onto you. Lord, that your righteousness, your garments are our only hope. That is what we stand under. So that all of your wrath, Lord, we we give thanks that it was poured out on Jesus, that we will never taste the full cup because he drank it for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.